The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Kevin Muir, the macro tourist himself, uh, who I had on uh, several months ago and is kind enough here to join us. So, Kevin, for those who are not familiar with who you are, talk about your background, how you get involved in markets, and what's your analytical skill set. Sure. Just uh, I'm a former Canadian equity derivatives trader that uh, worked in the 90s and the the go-go years of long-term capital in the dot-com bubble. And in 2000, I set off on my own. And uh, basically, for the past two decades, I've been trading my own money. Along the way, I started writing what started off as a diary. And I started sending it to some friends. And next thing I knew, there was some people that were actually reading it. And I started The Macro Tourist. And uh, I've got to meet a bunch of great people like yourself and think about different ideas and, and do... Uh, pass ideas along and stuff. So it's been a great journey and I've really enjoyed it. The idea of having a diary, I think, is interesting. And it's one that if you look at some of these kind of uh, historical legends in the investment industry, they always make a point that you have to write down every single day what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing, and if there's anything that you're learning as you're doing it. Talk about that process from the standpoint of consistency. And do you ever go back and look back at some of those prior writings and say to yourself, well, maybe the way I looked at it back then wasn't accurate, or maybe I should have thought about it differently? Oh, 100%. So I fell in love with Marco Wizards. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, my father was the research director for an independent Canadian brokerage firm. And I grew up talking a lot of stocks, but I always loved macro and, and it was something that I always wanted to do. And the other day I was at his house, he's long since retired, but he handed me something that he had found through the kind of in the bookcase. And what it was, was my first uh, journal. It was my first diary from way back when I was, I don't know, maybe 21 years old, 22 years old. And I, and I remember reading at the time that, as you mentioned, that the fact that diaries are a great way to, to kind of get your thoughts together and stuff like that. So I went back and I had a good laugh reading that. Over the years, I've obviously learned tons, uh, I think, as we all do. Uh, one of the things, though, that I like about writing a, a journal or, or, you know, or my what has now become my letter is that you really want to know something and, and, and to really understand it, you have to be able to teach people, other people. And so what it does is by making me 
come up with a way to articulate it. Like I need to be able to say why I believe something, why this is what I think will occur. And it just makes me get my thinking that much more kind of concise and that much more solid because it forces a discipline on me to, to, to really know the subject that much better. Which I think is interesting, right? It's kind of the argument that to teach yourself, you have to teach others along the way. Now, it gets to be kind of interesting in a social media-driven world because you can argue that now the modern diary is a tweet, right, yeah. to some extent. And that leaves one open to a lot of vulnerability from people that you're putting your thoughts out in the world and they are reading it, but will either disagree with it or in some cases outright insult you because of it. Yeah. Um, Right. You don't have that dynamic when you're obviously writing for yourself. So I am curious, Kevin, if how do you think about social media in the context of documenting your your way of looking at markets relative to sort of the longer form articles that you do for macro tourists relative to the kind of old school diary type of type of approach? So social media is being both a blessing and a curse for the traders. And by by far and away, it is it is a blessing and it is it is unbelievable the amount of knowledge that people can get from people that have been trading for years and years and years and stuff that would have just before been you know relegated to a a trading desk and not passed on like in my day when i started in the 90s I, i was lucky enough to sit beside some really great traders and learn from them well nowadays you can go and get onto twitter and you can go and there's equally great traders that are sharing their their knowledge on there and it is it is absolutely fantastic the the amount of people that are for really no cost like yourself these sorts of you know twitter spaces or people that are passing along information on a regular basis on twitter it enables the knowledge to be passed to be much more flat meaning that it used to be just passed from one trader to another and it was kept in a in a concise little area and now it's much more broad but at the same time it's created a, a toxic, terrible environment. Like all the great things about uh, the social media are also create some terrible, terrible uh, behavior. And let's just say that in the past couple of months, I've been really disappointed by how vicious it's become out there. And on the whole, Michael, most people don't bother with me because I don't like to fight with people. I'm I'm not the kind to get onto Twitter and fight. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that if you look at tra- really great traders, they understand that the art of making money is having everyone agree with your position, but later. And I think Jim Grant said that. And because if we all agreed right now, on on what the market was doing or what fair value was or or what the price of Tesla, Bitcoin, uh, S&P, whatever you want. If we all agreed, you'd have nobody to trade with. It's basically an efficient market. Yeah. And so one of the things that I, well, one of the people that, you know, over the years that I've loved to talk to, the people that I like best are the Chicago traders, the pits, the pit traders. Because to them, they understood that on the other side of every trade, with someone else. And if they didn't have somebody that was willing to, to, to buy something from them, they would have no trade. And so they are, they're not interested in winning a debate on Twitter. They're interested in making money. And they understand that for markets to be mispriced, someone has to have the opposite view. And one of the things that just kind of disappoints me about Twitter 
is that instead of just uh, embracing all the different views and saying to the extent like, I appreciate that somebody is on the other side of my trade and providing liquidity, there's this, this vicious uh, kind of attacks on a personal level. And to some extent, some of these uh, these trades, quote unquote trades, have become a religion. And it, and it just, it, it really frustrates me and it really just, it doesn't feel like a, a very healthy environment or a healthy way of being. And I can always tell true traders because true traders don't give a shit if somebody's on the other side of their view. And they're not interested in proving to somebody that they're right. They're interested in, you know, sharing ideas, coming up with their own trades. They realize that they're going to be right and they're going to be wrong. You know, the greatest trader of all time, I think, is Stanley Druckenmiller. He talks about the fact that 60% of his trades are right. That means 40% are wrong. So that means you're going to be wrong all the time. And this is what kind of makes me mad is that these people get on there and they, they end up fighting about it. It ends up being personal. And, uh, you know, I'll just give you an example. A lot of people these days have gone after Raul Paul. And, and you know, you can say what you want about the guy, but he's never gone and attacked people personally. Yes, maybe he was too aggressive in what he believed were trades. But at the end of the day, he was just communicating his belief about the market. I, like For those who follow me and understand what I've said, I, I couldn't be on more on the other side of Raul's trades than like on his ARC trades, on his, on his Bitcoin trades, on absolutely everything. I'm on the other side of his trades. But, you know, I, I appreciate him being out there because, first of all, if he wasn't, I, I wouldn't have these bubbles to be able to short into. Now, you might say I'm wrong. And that, you know, that these aren't bubbles, that, that Raul is going to be right. So be it. So if, if I'm wrong, then you should appreciate the fact that I'm short selling these into your, into your uh, market and you're getting a better price for it. So one of the things I just kind of want to, everyone to realize, and if I have one message to say, it's that this isn't like we're working in a child's oncology unit in a hospital. Like this isn't a stuff that is life and death. And this isn't, things that we should be so upset about and we should be happy with people on the other side of our trades and we should be understanding that the whole idea about markets about free markets is that people have the ability to set the prices and to execute their views in a free you know open market and that's how the price is determined and ultimately whether i'm right raul paul is right whether michael saylor or you know kathy wood or the the, the prominent bears out there it's all going to get solved in the market. So there's no reason for it to ever get vicious and personal. I think you and I are kindred spirits in the way that we see that and think about it. And you, know, you mentioned a few examples. I'll tell you anecdotally a few examples myself in terms of what I've gone through as somebody who's an entrepreneur. This year has been brutal for me, professionally and, and personally. And I've been very open in, in publicly saying this environment has been hell. I'm known for having put out these five different research studies. They won different awards. I've presented all over the country at CFA chapters talking about these findings. And they're all tested historically, and they're all quantitatively based. And they all show that, one, there are these leading indicators to conditions that favor volatility, rising or falling in equities. And two, that historically, treasuries are your best way to play stock market volatility, which is what classic traditional risk-off is. And I've gotten smacked this year, because which we'll talk about, Treasuries have not acted as the risk-off asset. The drawdown, uh, synchronicity, or whatever term you want to use, 
of treasuries has been the same as equities. So when your risk off act is acting like risk on, there's not much you can do but take the pain. Now, these are all rules-based approaches. And to your point about how people end up making personal attacks, so I often say block early, block often on Twitter. I've had a lot of people spread a lot of misinformation about my approach and talking about how the strategies are failures, even though this is clearly an anomalous environment. And then I had somebody say, you know, looking at the performance, oh, uh, you know, you must be ready to hang yourself. And it's like, I look at that, it's like suicide is not something to joke about. So you and I, I think, are are very similar in that you you use this term that the the nice thing about social media is that it levels the playing field, makes knowledge flat, but it also makes misinformation exponential, right? So let's let's kind of go with that a little bit. I, I, I wanted to relate it a little bit to my own world, and I'm very open and honest with a lot of this stuff, and I do believe that I, this period is probably near its end, and you know, I'm, I'm in a dislocation, and hopefully if I go back to the way these strategies are supposed to work, I can really have a nice run. So, okay, so let's go back to this. So let's start with this misinformation point. So, yes, the power of social media is that you can obtain all this interesting knowledge and, and data, and you get the collective wisdom of the crowd, but algorithms and people tend to retweet and like things which are likely not correct, because, and they tend to be emotionally driven. How do you filter through the noise? So it's difficult. And I, and I think that there's some changes that have occurred in the market in my 30 years of doing this. And I'll, I'll just start with the speed upon which the cycles have occurred, meaning that in the past, we would get an idea, you know, it would, it would, we would spread it, uh, you know, we would put a position on slowly, other smart investors would get it, pass it along. And the, finally, we always used to joke and say it would be the dentists because they would be the last ones to figure it out they would be the last to buy and you'd sell it to the dentist. And now the dentists are on the eve, on an even playing field because the reality is that the information gets spread so quickly. And so what I have found is that we are getting more, I call them a rolling series of mini bubbles. And one of the things that I think was most difficult for a lot of professional traders like myself in 2021 was that the market is usually more efficient, but the strange combination of a huge amount of fiscal stimulus along with monetary stimulus and the fact that a lot of people were sitting at home trading meant that a lot of the ways that we used to trade were tossed out the window. And I'll give you an example. Usually when an analyst gets on CNBC and talks up a stock and the thing you know would pop a dollar or two or you know whatever it would it would have a pop that would be the professionals would sell that because the reality is that that going on TV and talking about something wasn't any new information it wasn't enough to change the demand supply of of a of a stock over the long run but then in 2021, because of all these amount of speculation that was occurring, you had times that you people would get on to CNBC, you get a fellow like Tramath or Elon or whoever promoting something, saying something, and the stock would pop like 5% and then would run for another couple of weeks. And this was a, a dramatically different environment. It ended up being the difficult for many professional traders because the market was almost stupidly inefficient. Like it, it usually a market's efficient enough that you just go, there's no way that there's no, no information. So therefore that shouldn't go up yet. It did. So it, it, it was difficult for us to adjust to this, or at least for me, I guess some people loved it, 
that they they just grabbed hold of it. But I would contend that the market is returning more to a normal market now in that it's becoming more efficient. But in terms of your original question, which was kind of like, uh, how do you adapt and how do you deal with this? You need to be aware that the speed upon which this information is traveling is occurring faster and the cycles are quicker. So you'll get a situation where chip bill shippers will get hot and they'll get hot for, you know, three, four months, and then all of a sudden they'll go to the next one. So these little mini cycles am- among the bigger cycles are occurring with higher intensity and more frequency. Right, and, and that's that that sort of exponential nature and loudness that happens. And, you know, it's funny, you take me back a little bit to, I think it was, I want to say, 05, 06, whenever Kramer would mention some kind of stock that was more in the mid to small cap type of range, they back then would call it the Kramer effect, where because he said it, there would be an immediate pop, and then it would eventually kind of fade away. So, it, so, so it, it does show you the power of how people gravitate towards the soothsayer on the hill, who may be right or wrong because nobody can predict the future, but is treated as if they are the the guru of the moment, and you have to listen to what they are saying. But I would argue that we experienced, like, like Michael, I I believe that the 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 two thousand and twenty to two thousand and twenty one bubble in tech dream stocks was every bit as big as the dot-com bubble and every bit as dangerous. And one of the things that I've been saying for a couple quarters now is that this is going to come off and this is going to burst and this is going to be something that is going to take a long, long time to fix. And the mistake will be the people will go back to it, assuming that that tech bubble will, will reinflate again. And I think that one of the things that I, I'd like to just, when I'm thinking about messages that I'd like to tell everyone is that, yes, you are going to get bounces in art and Tesla and all these other names. But the reality is that these are broken stocks that are going to be for sale for years to come. So, so I just tweeted it. I, I included you on it. And what I did there was I put this, um, Microsoft, uh, I put a, a kind of some numbers together for Microsoft in 20, uh, 1990s to, to 2000. And what I showed there was the earnings and the price of the stock. Now, let me just grab it here. What I did was I actually plotted the, 12, the trailing 12-month earnings per share of Microsoft from 1990 to 2012. And you'll see there that, you know, in 1990, it was less than, you know, 10 cents a share or whatever. And between that and 2000, it skyrocketed to $1 per share. And there was some aggressive growth. And then we had the dot-com bubble crash. And during that period, earnings fell. So they fell 30% or something. But then in 2002 or whatever it was, it picked up and it started rising again. And sure enough, kind of within a decade, we had a situation where the earnings had gone from 80 cents or 75 cents all the way up to three bucks or two two seventy five. So you think, okay, let's let's kind of go through what happened in terms of the price. And what you'll see there is that the price per share of Microsoft went from thirty dollars. Uh, let me just get this right. Yeah, no, sorry, I got a no. Sorry, it went from five dollars in nineteen ninety seven to $50 in, 20, in, in 2000, 
And during that period, the PE went from 30 to 80, okay? And so then we have the dot-com crash, and we have the couple of years of, of pain in terms of the earnings, but then we have earnings take off. And in the next decade, earnings you know continue to grow. But what does the price of Microsoft do? Absolutely nothing. It stays, it starts 2000 at $30, and it ends a decade later at $30. And this is what I think is going to happen in, in this next kind of cycle that we're going in. And what I also you know, wanted to send to you is I put together what it is, is the Jim Cramer speech from 2000. And uh, I'm also going to include some charts here. And what the Jim Cramer speech was, was, was he called it the winners of the new world. And he goes through his top 10 favorite stocks that he should own. And he explains the mythology behind his choices. Now, I know a lot of you like to make fun of Jim Cramer and, you know, he's a Bethune that has the buy, buy, buy button and the sell, sell, sell button. But in 2000, he was actually quite a guru. He was a hedge fund manager. He was the, starting the street.com, which was the, the, you know, the first of social media kind of vintwit stuff. And he was kind of, I would say, the Chamath or the Kathy Wood of, of his era. And he talked in 2000 of 10 stocks that he was buying that you need to own. And just, I'm just going to tell you them here because I think they're kind of hilarious. 724 Solutions, Ariba, Digital Island, Exodus, Infospace, Intomi, Mercury Interactive, Sonera, Verisign, Veritas Software. Like, I don't know about you, Michael, but I recognize two of those names. Yeah, no, and, 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 and it's funny, right? Because it kind of goes back to this point I keep, saying is part of my own ethos, which is that you know, all this forecast stuff is largely nonsense. Nobody can predict the future. That also means that even though Kramer may have been hot for a moment in time, to your point, that's a good example of how nobody knows nothing about tomorrow. Because you don't even know if the company's going to be around by tomorrow. And, and to me, I look at, you know, we kind of laughed at the dot-com bubble and we laughed at the things that they believed. And I, I don't think the dot-com bubble seems that much different than the Kathy Wood Chamath bubble. And the the one thing I just want to reiterate is that these stocks went from, like I, I included some charts, if you could have put those in there as well. You can see what they did. They they went up and they went up, you know, 10, 20, 30 fold, collapsed back down and then went sideways for, for a decade. And then, you know, some of them got taken out, some of them went bankrupt, but they were nowhere. And I think that that's what's going to happen to a lot of these dream stocks, the Kathy Wood dream stocks. Now, does this mean we're not going to get rallies? I mean, the, there's no rallies coming? Not a chance. We're going to get the rallies. This thing has gone absolutely smushed. It's due for a rally. But what I wanted to say and want to kind of reiterate is that too many people are going to go back to that same playbook that worked in the past, in the past couple of years, past decade, and I think that is going to be the mistake they're going to make. And I'll say real quick, it's, it's like whenever I hear somebody saying that a uh, an investment they made, a stock or a cryptocurrency was, in quotes, good to me. That's the mentality that you're really hitting on because people remember when whatever they were investing in was making them money. And then suddenly they say to themselves, well, it made me money before. So let me go back to the same playbook I did you know, two years ago, now given where prices are. And it may not be the same playbook. Yeah, and it, well, it almost certainly won't be the same playbook. It's just like, if you think about uh, market crashes, 
And everyone always looks back and says, oh, the, the, the real estate was so obvious and uh, the dot-com was so obvious. I traded in all those and I'm telling you, they weren't obvious. And there was no way that uh, the, the reason that there's a book, uh, The Big Short in a movie, and, and those people are so famous is because they were the, like the eight people that actually got the short right. And yes, there was there was some that picked off different parts of it. But the point was, it was very difficult to know how big that bubble was and how much pain it would cause unwinding. And I would just say that although it is tempting to go back and say, uh, you know, these things are way down, they're down 70%, I'm going to buy them because they're going to go back up 50%. There's better trades out there, Michael. And, and, and that is the one thing I just want to reiterate over and over again. There are better things to own than broken tech dream stocks. They will rally those broken tech dream stocks. But I suspect that in, in a year, two years, three years from now, they're going to look a lot more like Jim Cramer's top 10 stocks to own for the new era than they will for the winners for the actual next stage of our bull market. Okay, now to your credit, Kevin, because I think last time we did this, I want to say it was back in either December or January. So it was quite a while ago. You had two primary arguments, which I want to tease out. One was that at the time, you were wildly bullish. And we're going to talk talk on that a bit uh, in terms of the idea that markets are going to surprise and the upside. And obviously, that hasn't happened, but that's not a critique on on the argument. But you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But the other thing, which was really accurate, was you were very adamant on this idea that energy would be the place to be. That you'd have this. I think you used the term violent rotation that right. would take place from tech into energy, and we ha- that we have seen unequivocally, right? This kind of massive relative underweighting of of tech starting and overweighting of energy. Talk about. What do you think happened this year in terms of the thesis that markets in terms of broad movement would go higher? And then talk about that violent rotation because you've been, I would argue, right and wrong at the same time. And markets are funny in that they they can allow for that to happen. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah. So um, I probably was at that point when we spoke too bullish on the markets. And at the end of the day, where I got that wrong, and I did shift after our thing was when I realized that the Fed was more serious about slowing down this economy than I expected. And ultimately, for those who know me for a long time, I've been a, a big inflation bull way before it was cool and when I used to get all sorts of flack for being a bond bear. And one of the kind of the key points that I've always harped on was that everyone assumes monetary policy is what drives the boat for inflation. And I actually much believe I believe that in fiscal uh, matters a lot more. So one of the reasons that I was bullish on the economy, and actually in some ways I still am more bullish on the economy. I just think that it's a little more nuanced than we think, um, that is the fact that fiscal is more powerful and has done more 
to improve the balance sheets of the private sector than we ever imagined. And that not only that, fiscal is going to stay and is not going away anytime soon. Yes, there will be periods which we pull back on the fiscal, and I think we're in one of those. But uh, where I got wrong was I didn't expect the market to bully the Fed into raising rates as quickly as they did. And if you look at the tightening that has been priced in to the front end of the yield curve, we've never had a situation where so much tightening has been priced in so quickly. That's, I guess, to some extent, my uh, kind of point about how the cycles have have increased in their ferocity and their speed upon which they're done. And maybe that's part of it as well. But what happened was we got a lot of inflation and the market freaked out and basically bullied the, the Federal Reserve to get really bearish or hawkish. And so, you know, when, if you think back to only a couple months ago that the Fed was going to go 25 at a crack and then the inflation numbers kept coming in hawk. And so they were bullied into doing 50 at a crack. And even there was some people trying to argue that they should do 75s and 100 which point finally the Fed pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do 75s, 100. And if you remember, that caused one of the rallies on that one day when, when Powell said that we're not going to do 75s at a crack, we're only going to do 50s. So going back to what, that's why I got it wrong, I do believe that now we are in a situation where the Fed has tightened so much, so fast, And most importantly, the financial conditions, which is in essence the stock market, credit spreads, U.S. dollar, have tightened so quickly, we're getting the reaction that the Fed wanted to slow down the economy. But kind of paradoxically, it's occurred quickly enough that the Fed is actually likely going to pull its foot off the brake so hard. They're not going to stop breaking. They're going to continue breaking. But the speed upon which that they're pushing down on that brake is going to pull off. And I actually think that what that'll do is it'll ease up and cause the stock market to be able to lift. And what I actually worry about is that as the stock market lifts, the Fed will be forced to push push down back on that break because the Fed does not want the stock market ripping higher. If you listen to Powell, he very much believes that the way that they that monetary policy is transmitted through the economy is through financial tightening of financial conditions. And as I mentioned, financial conditions are a, a, a variety of different instruments, but in, in essence, most of them are correlated, highly correlated to the stock market. So in the past, we used to have what you know people would talk about the, the Fed put, meaning that if the stock market went down too fast, they would ease up, as we saw in 2018 when Powell first took the the reins of the Federal Reserve and was trying to be all hawkish, and then the stock market collapsed. And so what happened was he pulled up on it. That was the, the, the Fed put getting exercised. I would argue that we've almost now created a situation where the Fed is trying to sell calls, meaning that if the stock market rallies too hard, they are going to be forced to push down on that break again. Because the fact is, inflation is just running too hot for them. It became too much of a political issue, and they're forced to do that. Now, ironically, we kind of go through this, you know, back to your argument about uh, Twitter and, and the finance, or the, the FinTwit and, and the kind of the polarity of different views. There's all these people that either believe 
that hyperinflation is coming and there's nothing the Fed can do to stop it, or the Fed's raising rates and the economy is going to collapse. And and too often it's it's just one or the other and or zipping back and forth between the two. In all my years of watching markets, that's not how it works. Most of the time, you know, you move slightly to one side, uh, things get repriced, you know, the economy evolves, and then you slip back to the other side, and now all of a sudden, you know, the risk reward has changed a little. And I think that's what's happened over the last, let's just say, week, because a week ago, if you remember, it was really quite bearish, but yet we've had this rally of the past week. And I think that the reason that we've had this rally in the stock market is because They've seen signs the economy is getting weaker, and they're anticipating the Federal Reserve pulling off on the break. It, it, it ends up being complicated in that we're at this point where the Fed wants you know, to try to achieve a soft landing, and that soft landing is going to be really hard to do. But yet, um, the stock market is kind of gyrating between uh, you know, uh, everything's okay. We can go back to rip and hire to everything's the end of the world. The Fed's going to stop this and it's going to collapse in on itself. And as we gyrate between those two, it ends up being difficult for traders to really know, you know, how to position themselves. And one of the things that I argue is that the days of the, you just buying the stock market, forgetting about it and having it rip 30% higher are probably over and that we're going to get a lot more chop. And that we're going to see situations where actually picking sectors, actually picking stocks is going to work again. And that's why I'm, I'm focusing on telling people, stop worrying about, you know, whether the S&P is going to rip 30% higher because it's probably not going to. And start picking stocks, start picking sectors and, and, and going back to the way that the stock market used to be. Stock market usually kind of goes up and down. Like in my, let's just say a typical year would be, it goes from up 15 to down five to close up eight. And I think that's what we're going to see more and more of. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and to your point about the extremes, I mean, the the truth is often somewhere in between. And I think that's what people miss with the amplification of social media on extreme messaging, right? And it is amazing to me how quickly the narrative seems to shift based on what ultimately may be randomness, right? Because even last week could, with hindsight, simply have been randomness. I know that sounds like a strange concept, but there are, you know, in bear markets, you tend to have what's known as volatility clustering, more frequent than not. And what that means is that typically extreme up periods tend to be followed by extreme down periods and vice versa. They cluster. It's like whenever you see these these uh, studies on 10 best days, 10 worst days, right? You miss the 10 best days, the performance, you miss the 10 worst days. What's never discussed in any of those studies is that the 10 best days and 10 worst days tend to cluster around each other. So you end up having these extreme moves both ways, which could really just be randomness and noise. And to that end, yeah, I think what you're advocating, which I agree with, is people just need to get back to basics instead of back to the same old narratives. You mentioned risk-reward. 
Now, I've made the argument that I think bonds from a trading perspective, which is not really something most people tend to think of bonds from, from the perspective of, I would argue that the risk reward now is probably better for bonds than stocks. Maybe I'm wrong on that. And, and I know you've got this kind of secular inflation theme, but what are your, your thoughts on the bond market first? Because I think if the argument is going to be that small caps are where people should be thinking about maybe allocating to, part of that is a discussion around credit you know, spreads and the bond market of, of you know, the underlying bonds of these smaller cap companies. Okay. So just so people understand what I believe in terms of the long-term secular inflation argument that I have, I'll just quickly tell people that it was it was five or six years ago. I, I started hearing about MMT, and I, I I didn't. I was embarrassed to not know what it was. So I reached out to uh, George Perks from uh, uh, Bespoke Investments, and I said, "Hey, look, I see you talking about this. Can you give me some help?" And he said, "Sure." And he passed me on to all, all this stuff, and I went I went down my own MMT rabbit hole. And Michael, I am an economics major that hates economics. I thought it was the most useless uh, profession ever. I, I, most of the stuff that I always read from the economists never worked in the markets. They didn't seem to understand how it really, you know, how, how what moved prices, and and it just seemed useless. So I had I kind of long given it up. And if you told me that I would spend two or three weekends in a row watching MMT lectures, uh, I would have told you you were insane. But there I was um, after George Perks telling me about this and going through and, and learning about it. And one of the things about MMT is that everyone thinks that it's a policy prescription and, it, and the message has been confused and uh, kind of conflated with what the actual theory says. And what the theory, the most important part about MMT is that people... People believed that they, there was a limit in, in terms of spending. One of the things that MMT pushed back against and said, no, there's no limit in terms of how much the government can spend. What there is is a real resource constraint. And listen, I know I can already see everyone getting mad at me and saying, no, no, that's not the case. And there's all sorts of stuff. But if you remember back to the great financial crisis, at that period, what had happened was we went into a into a almost a depression, a really severe recession. What most policy responses were, was the fact that, listen, too much debt got us into this problem, so we need to pull back and spend less. And even though everyone thinks that Obama spent so much, if you look at it and look at actually what his uh, budget deficits were, that were the discretionary part, meaning the non kind of automatic stabilizers, he was pulling back and cutting spending across the board. And that is part of the reason that we had such a, a, a kind of a tepid recovery following the great financial crisis. So now back to my story about MMT. So one of the things that I realized was that really, if the government spent money, that that would create um, more economic activity than we expect. And you might believe that in the long run, it's going to cause problems and that it's going to create this deficit that we're not going to be able to pay back. And you're, you're welcome to that opinion. I believe that there, there's, there's elements of truth to both, but I do believe that in essence, it was kind of the missing piece of the puzzle of why there was no inflation 
in, in the great financial crisis. And the way I think about it is for the past 40 years, ever since 1982 and Volcker bro- broke the back of inflation, we have tried to fix every single economic slowdown through monetary policy, meaning that what happened would be the economy would slow down, they would lower rates to try to encourage more private sector borrowing. So what eventually that meant was that the the amount of private sector borrowing increased, increased, increased to the point where that even when they brought rates to zero, nobody wanted to borrow. They We had reached what Richard Kuh had called a balance sheet recession. And at that point, they went and did all their extraordinary measures, their quantitative easing, their operation twists. And everyone at first thought that there was going to be uh, this terrible inflation and it was going to create this awful environment. And we we're going to go into hyperinflation like the like uh, Weimar Republic. There was a very famous Wall Street Journal op-ed that was signed by like a 100 of the smartest economists, economists and market strategists. And what happened? We had no inflation. Okay. And during this period, what I think is occurring is that people realized that it was actually the fact is that the fiscal mattered more than we thought. So during this, there was an increased knowledge and understanding of why we had no inflation. And then COVID hits. And COVID hits. And I say, I remember this very well. I said, this is finally going to be the thing that changes the attitude about fiscal spending. Although everyone forgets, or a lot of people forget, most strategists were extremely bearish in March of 2020. They, they thought that we were going to go into an economic depression. They thought that you can't just you know, send everyone home. This is going to be a disaster. And then what happens? The economy ends up being stronger than they think. And even more surprisingly, the market ends up being stronger than you think. Now, you might think, that that was a terrible policy. And I might even agree with you to some extent in terms of the amount that they did, but it doesn't really matter what you and I think. It's like you can wail against it all you want, but meanwhile, the stock market, you know, tripled, I mean, doubled in our face. So I would rather, instead of, you know, being all religious about it, I'd rather figure out where it's going. Like I always say, uh, you know, don't worry about what should be done worry about what will be done. And that's kind of one of my like sayings that I like to repeat over and over again. So going back to the idea about why we got inflation, we got inflation because they spent too much. And it actually pisses me off that the MMT uh, folks won't just say it. They won't say outright, yeah, you know what? Sure, we stopped a recession slash depression, but we spent too much. And we're learning, and then we made a mistake, and next time we won't spend quite as much. But they won't say that, but that's you know neither here nor there. At the end of the day, even though I was sympathetic to some of the MMT policies, I've always said that one of the results of MMT will be that we will make more inflation. And I do not believe that we are putting going to put back the fiscal spending genie into the bottle. The reality is that just like monetarism was abused, and I think monetarism was abused. You look at European rates at negative, U.S. rates at zero. That was abusing monetary policy. We are going to abuse fiscal policy. So you can say what you want about whether what should be done, or you can just go position your, your portfolio correctly about what will be done. I always use that line, right? It's like, I don't, I don't choose the cards I'm dealt. 
I just yeah. choose to play the game. Yeah. So I've been I've been a huge Bond bear, uh, and I, I continue to believe that rates are going to go higher and higher. Now, will there be tradable rallies in the meantime? Yes. Are we in one? I believe we are, and I definitely believe that the front end is um, something you can buy, and it's it's something I trade all the time because I think that the market has incorrectly assumed that this Fed is Volcker-like. And yes, they do say some things that are kind of leaning that way, but let's face it, it took 8% inflation for them to even raise rates and stop QE. So everyone tells me how the Fed's going to be so hawkish and I'm going to do all this stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the most dovish Fed I've ever seen. The moment they get an excuse to not raise rates, they're going to they're take it. And you might say, well, what, why that, that shouldn't that make you a bond bull? And no, if you think about what a bond trader's nightmare is, like assuming no default, which for sovereignty, let's just put that aside. What the bond trader's nightmare is, is inflation. So um, I, I'm actually in, in Stanley Druckenmiller's camp that I be, believe that QE is inflationary uh, and bad for long bonds and that QT is the opposite. And now you might argue, like it gets a little more complicated right now, but the long and short of it is that I do believe that the Federal Reserve is going to not ever get out ahead of inflation and, and get in front of the curve. And therefore, bonds will be continually financially repressed and which will eventually create an environment where the yield curve is extremely steep. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think that before it's all through, the yield curve goes to record wide, meaning that the front end will be, let's say the front end is four and the long end is eight, nine, 10, something stupid like that. And I think that that's what that's will occur. Okay, so now let's let's dove that, dovetail that a little bit to the thesis around small caps. I want you to talk about why you think investors should be looking at small or equal weight type of strategies. Now, I will preface this by saying that I really would love to see small caps be a market leader because it's very hard to beat the S&P in a risk-on environment unless if the S&P is the only game in town, right? right. You want to see, it's like people forget, it's like the only way really, when you look historically at the attribution of a lot of these hedge funds that really had outstanding returns, it's often because they were either in emerging markets at the right cycle time or they weren't small caps broadly at the right cycle time. And of course, they use leverage. Now, the last decade or so has been dominated by just mega caps and largely tech. Small caps have had this like death by a thousand cuts type of failed momentum, especially starting last year. Talk about your thesis around the smaller cap side of the market and why you think investors should be paying attention. Okay, so there's there's a few things. There's a secular argument, and there's a cyclical argument, and then there's the argument about the fangs being overpriced. So let's just let's just get the fangs overpriced with uh, uh, first. If you think about what I've discussed in terms of this. Uh, declining rate environment of the past 40 years because the reality is that we focused until 2020 focused solely on monetary policy to try to fix things which created a situation with very limited growth and lower and lower interest rates what are the type of stocks that you should own in that environment you should own long duration assets and and the reason you should own long duration is just like how why you own like a zero coupon 30-year bond over a one-year uh, 
T-note. And it's there's more bang for the buck. And the reason there's more bang for the buck is because you're discounting all the future growth, which is a higher amount of future growth at a lower and lower rate. So one of the things that's occurred is that, as you mentioned, that especially over the last decade, those FANG mats like the Facebook, Apple, Netflix, all those stocks have become extremely expensive and and they, they really were the only game in town. I think you explained it quite well there. And if you think about it also from the fact that we had a situation where the U.S. was the only one that was willing to run budget deficits, which meant that there was more growth, but there's still no inflation in the U.S. because the rest of the world wasn't running deficits. It also created an environment where there was more capital attracted to the the U.S. and there was more profits to be had because it's an accounting identity that the government's de- deficit is the private sector's credit. So capital just flew in, fl- flowed into the states in record amounts. And if you think about yourself like a European pension fund manager, if you weren't overweight FANGMAT or U.S. equities, you were out of a job. You have like situation where there's stocks, you European stocks have gone nowhere. Currency has gone down. It's been a disaster. So one of the most crowded trades out there is overweight U.S. stocks and especially those fang maps. And I know a lot of people say, oh, no, these guys, they've started to sell. Listen, they've started to sell and it is going to take them years for them to sell because they are so overweight. And it's what everyone owns. It's one of those things way back when there was a saying you could never get fired for owning IBM or buying IBM. And it's the same way with the fang maps. So that, so that overpricedness is going to be for sale forever. In essence, large cap uh, U.S. stocks had turned into a huge tech bet, which was an, almost a, a, just a, a bet on interest rates. So if I'm correct that interest rates are headed higher, the last thing you want to own are there are those things. Now, let's talk about from a secular basis why you might want to own small caps and or equal weight. So when you think about the S&P 500, the S&P 500 weights the largest stocks higher and, and, and they, you end up buying more of those. So if you look at the re, uh, returns of equal weight indexes over large periods of time, and I've seen studies where you do this even over various countries, if you take a long enough period, like you know, five, 10 years, they always beat the market weight cap indexes. Now, the reason why this arbitrage exists is because the large professional pension funds and money managers, they can't afford, because of either liquidity risk or tracking risk, to take the equal weight portfolio and actually hold on to it. Because what happens is you'll have periods where the equal weight will underperform by one, two, three, four years. Now, eventually, it has always, you know, won out and eventually outperformed the the market cap weight. But that tracking error means that there's too much career risk for people to take take that risk. But if you are an individual and you're managing your own money, then this is the perfect bet to take because you don't care if you underperform for one quarter, two quarters, even a year. What you're interested in is maximizing your long term returns. So you can take a longer term approach and you can say, I'm going to buy equal weight. And if I'm, if I'm down for a year, so be it. 
Now, the good news is if you go look at it, because of what I just discussed about the fangs, fang mats, the, uh, the equal weight's already been underperforming for, you know, the last five, 10 years. I can't remember what the, you know, what, how low it is in terms of how many years new lows it is, but it's very cheap compared to the market cap. The second trade out there that has worked over the long run is small cap. And again, it's the same concept in that what happens is small caps are more volatile. They go through periods when they underperform, outperform, but that underperformance means that the people, the, the money managers that are you know getting actively benched against uh, you know their their benchmark, they can't afford to take that risk. Now you just mentioned it, Michael, that that the last ten years that anybody's owned small caps has gotten crushed. So we've had a situation where, in essence, old money managers that used to own those stocks are out of business. Nobody owns it anymore. And one of the things that I do believe that occurs is that you'll get clustering or almost herding amongst professional money managers, and they all do the same thing. And I, I can't tell you how often I've seen this, even amongst big hedge funds. They all convince each other of the same thing. They talk themselves into all the same trade, and they just keep going that way and going that way and going that way. And so what's happened over the last decade is that as the fangs have become so dominant, they've all clustered there. But what's interesting, Michael, is that in the last quarter, we've had a situation where for the first time, value has outperformed uh, growth. And now all of a sudden, and it's been so dramatic that a lot of the times when you look at the relative returns, it is now... Um, value is winning over a growth. And a lot of those kind of consultant type firms that recommend allocations to pension plans, to endowments, they are switching and they are for the first time introducing and saying that you have to increase your exposure to value. So it becomes almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we're seeing more and more of that. And I think that this is a trend that will occur over the ensuing years. And we can also talk about the other reason that I like this small cap trade is that I'm a big believer that when you had a situation where you starved the economy of money in that you didn't do enough fiscal and you focused on monetary stimulus, it made it so that there was very little actual money being created in the real economy. It was all created in the financial economy. When you made fiscal stimulus and just shoved it out into the market and and put it into people's genes, it, it ended up being on Main Street. So I contend that we're going to have uh, years from now of Main Street over Wall Street, and that you're going to see that that will also be to the benefit of, of small caps. I hope you're right on that. I, I, I'll ask one quick question that I got via DM here from Steve Hu, which I think is really interesting. He asked the question, how would deglobalization affect U.S. small or mid-caps? Okay, so deglobalization is the other reason that I believe that we're going to get more inflation. I, I focused on the monetary aspect of why we've had lower and lower rates, but one of the other issues, the reasons that we've had lower and lower rates and lower inflation over the past 20 years is we had two huge supply kind of events in terms of labor. The first was the falling of the Berlin Wall or the Iron Curtain in 1989. And then even more importantly, it was the uh, emission of China into the WTO. 
And both of those these things created a situation where it ended up being tons of labor shoved, you know, into the global uh, market really quickly. And if you look at labor as a percentage of GDP, it's gone down, 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 down. And share of profits has gone up, 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 up during that period. So when I think about deglobalization, I think about a situation where we're going to see the opposite. So we saw lower interest rates, lower inflation uh, from that. And now I think we're going to see the opposite. We're going to see higher inflation, higher interest rates from from deglobalization. So how will that affect small caps? I don't know if it will have, well... I, I guess I would argue that. Well, hold on, but hold on. Yeah, sorry, I mean, maybe it's a function of sort of relative margins, right? So, in other words, if deglobalization means that the cost of labor, for example, will go up, and because you're not going to have the the labor arbitrage that multinational large caps can take advantage of versus domestic small caps, maybe it's as simple as the advantages that large caps have had for years is, are, are not going to be as as pronounced, and, and that creates sort of a a cap reweighting. Yes, and that, but. I'm more, though, I just think that we're going to have more money in the hands of the kind of consumer, let's say, main town America. And so one of the things that I do believe as well is that you don't want to own things like Coach and like, you know, I'm bullish on real estate in the U.S., but I, I won't be as bullish on the gateway cities. I don't think that you want to own the Miami, New York LA markets. I think you want to own the middle America markets. I think you want to own Atlanta and parts of Florida that you know the, that are outside of Miami and 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 places that are going to do better under kind of a lifting up of the middle. And I that is what I expect. And I at the same time, if we do get that lifting up of the middle, if we do get the consumer with with more money in their jeans and more money to, to be able to spend, I think that you'll find that that the the small caps will do better, uh, especially since you'll find that it'll be increasingly difficult for the the, the supply chains and the issues that we used to have. The 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 the, the selling by Amazon uh, and, and all those companies coming from China, that's all going to go away. And we're going to see more reshoring of stuff in, in, in middle America. And not only that, even more importantly, is the fact that Amazon, all those companies are priced for them to continue to grow grow share, whereas the small caps are priced to never be able to pick up any share at all. And that is the most important part about it. Yeah, and no, I think that's very well framed. So listen, everybody that's been here during the space, please make sure you follow Kevin Muir. Check out his research, as you can tell, very thoughtful and very knowledgeable. Make sure you subscribe to the Lead Lag Report on YouTube, please to get notifications of these videos. Kevin, I always enjoy speaking with you, listening to you. Uh, I, I find myself nodding quite a bit uh, during this conversation. Uh, and, and I really hope that you continue to spread that, that message that we have to get out of this sort of us versus them, you suck type of mentality because somebody got something wrong in the here and now. We're all trying to figure out the unknowable future. We all are trying yeah. to, at the end of the day, uh, it's not a competition. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say, just maybe that's a good kind of closing thought. The notion that you this is a competition that you have to beat the market and that you have to do better than everybody else to me is just silly, toxic, and really doesn't help society. Uh, and I wish more and more people would be kind, to some extent at least, to those who are being vulnerable in terms of putting their thoughts out there, whether they're right or wrong. At least they're doing something that uh, hopefully is 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 a net positive for everybody else. I, I have a saying that's called "Meet you in the machine," and uh, 
it was a piece I wrote. And actually, I think you can go to meet you in the machine or see you in the machine.com. And I wrote a piece about it. And it was basically the art, the idea that as traders, when we disagreed about something, we had a trade. And instead of getting all upset about it, we welcomed that there was someone on the other side of our trade. So just be, uh, I would encourage people to say more often, I'll see you in the machine, meaning that I'm happy to have someone that has the opposite view of me because that means that I have someone to trade with. And you just, that's the, uh, we should remember that that's the, uh, at the end of the day, you need someone else to trade with. And even more importantly, we're all human beings. And the reality is, as I said it once, and I'll say it again, it's not like what we're doing is is this life and death thing. It's We're lucky and fortunate to be able to do this for a living and uh, I think that people should uh, be a little more kind to one another and, and not re- and realize that they're not quite as important as they all think. At least I know I'm not. Yeah, no, well said. And, and as a reminder to those that unfortunately have to put up with those occasional people that don't keep that message, I always put out that, that famous Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts. So I think that's a, a good way to, to close out the conversation. Thank you, Kevin. Thank everybody for joining. I'm going to actually take a day off from Spaces tomorrow. I will resume this week. And again, uh, everybody enjoy the rest of your nights, mornings, whatever time zone you're in. Thank you, everybody, for uh, being a part of this. Thank you, Kevin. Make sure you follow Kevin. Thanks, everyone. Take care. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.